Heavenly Father, we do uh, come before you today acknowledging that our, that our only hope is in you. And we pray, please, that you might move amongst us today, that you might work in me by your spirit to graciously use me to speak truth, to speak your words. Uh, please use me to bring uh, a prophetic word of who you are and what you've done and how we're to respond. Pray, please, for us that you move amongst us to cause us to hear these things, that they might deeply uh, embed in our hearts. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're starting a new series today. Uh, we're starting a series in the book of Romans. It's a letter, an ancient letter written about 57 AD. Uh, 57 AD, we're talking centuries old, from a city called Corinth, almost certainly, to a bunch of Christians in Rome. Now, that makes it a very ancient letter and it makes it um, uh, a letter that uh, is important to us because it's God's Word. Now, and it's not too much to say, actually, that this book is special, not just because it's God's Word. It's, it's of all the Bible, the whole Bible is profoundly important because it's God's living voice. But this one, the book of Romans, brings together thoughts and ideas and truths that are utterly mind-blowing. Uh, it is significant down through church history. Uh, I'm not the only person to have thought this. Listen to some quotes. Uh, Samuel Coleridge, who was a famous guy from the 1700s, 1800s. Who, know, who knows Samuel Coleridge? Not personally, but who knows of Samuel Coleridge? Um, personally, uh, personally. Um, <laughs> what's he famous for? Does anyone remember? Poetry. Poetry. Which poem particularly? The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner. Uh, that's right, so it takes you all the way back there. But he was also a theologian. He said this, I think that the epistle to the Romans is the most profound work in existence. Wow. Another theological uh, guy from history said this, it is unquestionably the most important theological work ever written. Now, some of you will know this name, John Piper. John Piper thinks of it as the Everest of New Testament letters. I mean, it's just to whet your appetite that the material we'll be looking at over the next weeks is astonishing. Now, we're not doing the whole book. We've been doing it chunk by chunk over the years and we've done the first eight chapters in previous years. Uh, this year, we're going to start at chapter nine, um, and which is perhaps the most confronting challenging, life-changing part of Romans, which is a book which is the most astonishing book of the whole Bible. So Romans 9 to 11 is, is a confronting part of the most wonderful letter. It's going to be big. So I want to encourage you to particularly pay attention this time. Now, now, I know you always do, you see, it's wonderful to be together, we just wrestle with the Scriptures and so many of you are working hard at the Bible. But if for you the church is a new experience and perhaps kind of getting into the Bible's a thing you're slowly coming into, let this be the time where you're going to go, yeah, actually, I'm going to really focus, I'm going to pay attention particularly and I'm going to look at it not just on Sundays, uh, which I trust you're always here, it's the Lord's day, the Lord's people gather, of course we'd be gathering here, come to hear the word, come to hear Romans, but through the week, grab hold of these daily reading notes, they're out the front, you can grab them for a couple of bucks, um, this will give you a way to actually go through it day by day, to have a look at the chunk 
of the Bible, reflect on it, just spend 10-15 minutes if that's all you've got, spend longer if you've got longer, but make it this term to be the term I'm really going to dig in, I'm going to pay attention and work out what the Bible has to say uh, and, and ask these kinds of questions, is this really what God is like? How is it different from the way I've thought? I think it'll rattle many of us. It'll be confronting, particularly next week, chapter 9. And so as we come into that, I want to provide an important context for making sense of chapter 9. Chapter 9 will raise all kinds of questions around uh, the power of God, the might of God, the sovereign freedom of God. And I want to help us come to that with the right context, the right frame by looking at the earlier parts of Romans. And particularly, I want to look at the place of faith in our human experience and our relationship with God particularly. That'll help us when we come to Romans. It'll help us make sense of the things that are said in chapter 9. But it'll help us, of course, just know how to relate to God how to respond rightly to Him and how to know salvation. It's deeply important. Now, the reason I'm saying all of this is because when you start the book of Romans, faith is a massively important word and theme. Look there at verse 16. Many people regard verse 16 and 17 as the topic sentence of the whole book. And if you look there, I want you to notice how often faith is used. Let me read it for you. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For it's the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, the righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Do you see the word faith is used a number of times? And if you know a little bit of the original language, you'll see it's used more often. Let me give you a bit of Greek. So the Bible's written in Greek, we have it translated for us into English, very good translations, Uh, numbers of people can read the original Greek and so it's not hard to work all that out. But the word faith is there a little bit more often than the English indicates. You see there verse 16, the word believe, that's actually the Greek word pistuo, which is the word we translate faith or believe, but pistuo. It's the same word you see in verse 17, Uh, a righteousness that is by faith and that little phrase from first to last has another word faith hidden in it. Our translators didn't use the word faith there because they just want, Paul says from faith to faith and we understand Paul to be meaning faith is so much important that it's from first to last faith and then he quotes from the Old Testament, the righteous person will live by faith What you have is four times the word faith is used in two sentences, in what is the topic sentence of the whole book. Paul is not ashamed of the gospel, it's the power of God for salvation. I mean, the gospel brings salvation, you see. At the very heart is the news of Jesus, which is what the gospel is, you see it there in chapter 1, verse 2 and 3. It's the gospel concerning Jesus, His Son. It's the gospel, verse 9, that is... um, uh, Verse 8 and 9, isn't it? I'm sure it's there. Verse 9, in in preaching the gospel of His Son, the gospel concerns Jesus, who He is and what He's done. This gospel brings salvation. But it only brings salvation for people who respond in faith. And Paul's concern to 
pay attention to the human response of faith. You said the gospel is the power of God for salvation for everyone who faiths. When you understand it's the Greek word faith, you see that beneath the word belief is the idea of faith. Now, we can't say in English for everyone who faiths, so we turned it into belief. Everyone who believes, the same idea. Um, faith, again, 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 through these sentences. Um, Paul puts it as the key idea, but he also does this incredible thing. He quotes, he quotes from an Old Testament verse in verse 17, the righteous will live by faith. Here is the key way a human must respond to God, in faith. It's massive. It's life and death. It's heaven and hell that you have faith. It's day by day that you have faith. It's the main posture we're to have. And it will position us to make sense of chapters 9, 10 and 11. Faith. So, what is it? What is faith? How do you get it? How do you know if you've got it? What is faith? Well, let me start by saying what it isn't. I did some research uh, through the week and I looked up a dictionary. Um, and I looked up a dictionary definition of the word faith. And it's got a number of different definitions of the way people use the language of faith. But this one stood out for me. Here it is. Here's faith. Faith is a firm belief in something for which there is no proof. Now, that's the wrong definition, just to be clear, right? But... Uh, but it's in the dictionary because what the dictionary is doing is indicating what lots of people believe the word faith means. And so that's how it gets in the dictionary. You do know this, don't you? Dictionaries don't kind of draw out of the heavens what a meaning of a word is. They just look at the way people use words and say that's what it means, you see. Well, faith is used very popularly amongst us to be something that you believe in when you have no evidence. And it contrasts with the rational person. You see, you have the religious person who has faith, believes in something with no evidence, and then there's the rational person who believes things because there is evidence. The scientific person, the adult sophisticated person, the person who only believes things that we have evidence for, they live by the facts, whereas the religious person lives by faith, without evidence, without facts. Let me be clear, that's not what the Bible says faith is. In the Bible, the word faith, pistuo, just it means trust. It just means trust. And that is exactly what you are all doing now. Every one of you, right at the moment, is exercising faith in the building you're sitting in. You think with me about this. Why are you sitting in this building? Because you have faith in what? Yeah, not the architect. The architect just does fluffy lines. You have faith in the engineer, that's right, and the builders, the structural workers and so on. The, the engineers, your civil engineers, you see. Um, that was my history. So you, did, actually, did you know that life expectancy only increased from very low to very high because of not the work of medical people, 
because of engineers. <laughs> Civil engineers. Um, now, why are you sitting here? You're sitting here because you are convinced, you are trusting that the building won't fall down. Now, why do you believe that? Have you looked at the structural engineering specifications? So why are, you convi why are you trusting that it won't fall down? Give us some reasons why. How do the regulations help you? They regulate the engineers. They regulate... <laughs> <laughs> That's right. So you know the engineers are not doing it by themselves. They've got someone making them do it right. Um, but there's a whole raft of things that gives you confidence, that's what the word trust means, confidence in reliance in the building's stability, like a history of seeing engineering practice work, uh, a, a code of practice amongst councils and government buildings that check and make sure it works, and a history of seeing buildings in our country not fall down. So you've seen a history of these pieces making buildings stand up and work well and so you've got confidence not just in this building but the whole history and so you walk into this building trusting it won't fall down because of a raft of evidence not the particular one of this one but the whole lot you see you're exercising faith as you're sitting there faith is not something you believe in without evidence trust is a thing you have with a raft of evidence do you see you know um it's what a wife does when her husband cooks her dinner. <laughs> it's what my wife does if I cook dinner. She trusts me that she won't get sick, you see. And that's because of a raft of good reasons and evidence and so on, isn't it? <laughs> that, uh, she's got a lot of reasons to trust me in that. Faith is something that you have because of a raft of evidence that you ground your confidence in someone, your trust in something. Now, this is massive... The way we relate to God is by faith, trusting Him. Now, you see there at the end of verse 17 that just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. What Paul does is illustrate his point about the importance of faithing with God by reaching back into the Old Testament, you an Old Testament quote from Habakkuk chapter 2. If you drop down to the bottom of your page, you'll see that's where it's from, Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 4 which says that the way a righteous person lives, the way a person in right relationship with God lives day by day, is by faithing, by trusting God. Now, this is such an important verse for Paul. He quotes it here, he quotes it in Galatians 3, it gets quoted in Hebrews chapter 10. It's such an important verse. I want us to go back into its context and see it. So come with me back to Habakkuk chapter 2. Now, where the heck is Habakkuk chapter 2? It's in all those little minor prophets, and the best way to find it is contents page. So just surreptitiously, quietly go to this contents page. I put something there to make sure I didn't look a fool up the front. Habakkuk chapter 2. Uh, if you've got a phone, of course, just... And then put it in your pocket and buy a real Bible. No, if all you've got your phone, it's very good to look at. Just don't go on Facebook. Let me take you through Habakkuk. Habakkuk's an ancient prophecy. It's effectively the private journal of an Old Testament prophet, struggling in his relationship with God. Let me show you verse 2 of chapter 1. 
How long, Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen? Or cry out to you violence, but you do not save? Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. The wicked hem in the righteous so that justice is perverted. You see what the Habakkuk the prophet's saying? Um, God, you're not meant to do this. Life's meant to be very different than the way it appears. You're letting injustice run rampant. You, you should be judging them. Why are you doing this, God? You come down to verse 12, you get another complaint of Habakkuk. Um, Lord, are you not from everlasting? Uh, you are the Holy One, you will never die. You have appointed them to execute judgment. You are my rock, you have ordained this. Now, what's he talking about here? He's talking about the Assyrians and the Babylonians who are coming across to destroy God's own people, the Israelites. And he says, verse 13, your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. Why then do you tolerate the treacherous, the king of Assyria and Babylon? Why, why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? Do you see, what he's seeing is that life is not the way it's meant to be. Here is a God who, who can't even look upon evil and yet is tolerating evil rulers in his world. In this context, stuff is happening in life that doesn't fit what he thinks of God. But then God gives the answer, chapter 2, verse 2. Then the Lord replied, write down the revelation and make it plain on tablets so that a herald may run with it. For the revelation awaits an appointed time, it speaks of the end and will not prove false. Though it lingers, wait for it, it will certainly come and will not delay. God will do something, he says to Habakkuk, I'm going to act, wait on me for me to do that. Verse 4, see the enemy is puffed up, the rulers that I tolerate, the ungodly, the unjust, they're puffed up, their desires are not upright, but... The righteous person will live by his faithfulness. Live by, Paul quotes it, his faith. They will live day by day trusting me. Trusting in me. The way a person who is right with God, that God is pleased with, will live day by day trusting in God. So that at the end of the book, come with me to chapter 3, there's these wonderful verses you may be familiar with. Uh, verse, start at verse 16 actually. I heard and my heart pounded, my lips quivered at the sound, decay, decay crept into my bones, my legs trembled, yet I waited patiently for the day of calamity. He's waiting for this word of God to be fulfilled and it's a stressful, intense, terrifying time. And so he comes, verse 17, to this. Though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I'll be joyful in God my Saviour. I will trust Him. Even when it all goes wrong, even when I don't receive tenfold for the sacrifices I make, 
even then I'm, when I'm in, in debt and are not prospering, when the fig tree doesn't bud and there's no sheep in the pen and I haven't got wealth and prosperity, I've got sickness and not health, when it's even like that, I'll rejoice in the Lord because I live by faith in Him. I will trust Him. He will one day come and set things right and I wait patiently. There it is. The message of Habakkuk, trust God. Trust God when things don't match what you think they ought to be. Trust God when things are going sour. Why? Well, it's not because there's no evidence. That's the dictionary's wrong definition. It's not because there's no evidence. But it's because he has given abundant evidence of how trustworthy he is. He has shown himself to be all-powerful. He rules all things and he's shown himself to be good and gracious. I mean, you go all the way back to the garden, the Garden of Eden. God made the universe, he made everything. He made the world, he made the garden. It's full of beauty, it's full of wonder. Have you noticed those first couple of chapters of Genesis that the Garden of Eden that God put them in was full of water, it was full of beautiful things, such that the fruit they'd look upon it was, was beautiful to the eye. And God walked with them through the evening of the day. God was there and it was full of wonderful things. He only gave them one command. Don't eat the fruit of that tree. You can eat everything else. Knock yourself out. Just don't eat that fruit. All the first man and woman had to do was trust him. And so obey him. In fact, notice that there's a connection between trust and obey. The reason you were able to obey is because you trust the God who's commanded to do. And so I trust him and will obey. And the thing Adam and Eve failed to do? Well, they disobeyed God. But at root, that failure to obey God was a failure to trust him. Do you sense the offence that that is? You know, you meet someone in the street and you've got to go and pick up your car and they say, oh, look, give me the keys, I'll go and pick up the car for you. Do you trust them? <laughs> Not on your life, I've only just met you, I don't know anything about you. But my wife of 40 years says she was abused by a friend, yelled at and pushed. Now, it's your friend. Do you believe her? Trust her? It's possible she's lying. It's possible, but you've known her for 40 years. She's never lied like that. She's been entirely trustworthy. She's been your most intimate partner for all of your days. If you won't trust her, who will you trust? And a failure to trust her is deeply hurtful of her. It's deeply offensive. In fact, one of the most honouring things you can do in a marriage is trust each other. You know, God creates and he gives us everything that is good. He gives us the freedom to eat from anything we wanted to eat from. And Adam and Eve see his faithfulness, his goodness, day after day, the beauty, the wonder, the provision. He walks with them in the garden. And along comes a serpent. And he says, 
God's only telling you not to eat it because he doesn't want you to be like him. Did God really say? He knows that when you eat of it, you'll become like him and he doesn't want you to. Who do you listen to? Who do you trust? The serpent that you've known for five minutes or the God who has provided everything? That's exactly the question that was put before Adam and Eve. And Adam and Eve made the most dreadful decision in human history. And the consequences were horrific in their own lives and throughout humanity's life. But what it said about how they thought of their God and Father was where the pain was. Their God, the maker of all things, they wouldn't trust. And this is not just Adam and Eve. We have demonstrated the same attitude all our days as well. Come with me to Romans chapter 1 now. Come back there. Paul in Romans chapter 1 gives a diagnosis of the human heart in verse 18, 19 and 20. He talks about how God's anger is being revealed against heaven. He's made the world in verse 19 and 20, the invisible shape and the power of his life has been revealed in all that he's made. And look at verse 21, two things humans fail to do. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God or gave thanks to him. What's interesting is Paul only chooses two things to address at the heart of human sin. He'll show some consequences that flow from all of that down through the chapter. But the two core issues are humans failing to honour God as God and give thanks to him. At the very heart of human relationship with the sovereign creator of the universe, we ought to honour him and give thanks to him because he is God and he has given us all things. And at the very heart of that is a failure to trust God. You know, this presses into every struggle you have as a Christian. You know, every time you're tempted to give into temptation, every time you grasp after things in the world, in the mix of all of that will be a failure to trust God. He says, I've got this. Here's my command for you that's for your good. Trust me. Lean not on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge him, trust him. You know, we've been saying this a little bit and want to keep saying this. Uh, we are in the midst of a battle for your soul. Right at the moment, it is particularly intense and it will intensify as the next bunch of years come on, uh, hence the hot topics time. Do you know, we're in the midst of gender wars, sexuality wars, relational wars. All kinds of questions around um, what, what human sexuality looks like. Is it gendered or is it fluid? Uh, what does love look like in human relationships? Is it love is love, however you want to shape love? What does it look like? Uh, Men-women relationships, what's the shape of that relationship? How do it express itself? Marriage, what ought marriage look like? Man, woman, men, 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 what ought it look like? We're in the midst of massive confrontations around these kinds of issues. And the world has a particular view on these things about men and women, about relationships, order, love. 
And you think with me about every place that what the Bible teaches contrasts with what the world teaches. You think of those verses that the world finds deeply offensive and we find ourselves embarrassed about. Can you think of some of those verses? Now, here's the question. What will you do with that difference between what the world teaches and what the Bible teaches? Right there is an Adam and Eve moment. Will you trust God? Or will you trust the world that you've known for five minutes, that has actually darkened in its understanding and has become foolish as it's rejected God? Where will you put your confidence? You see, this principle is an essential way of relating to God day by day. Just in life, the way I honour God and give thanks to God is by trusting Him. But it has a very deeply profound particular. It's a general way of relating to God, but it has a particular expression in salvation. You see, how can a sinner, one who has failed to honour God and given thanks to Him and has become darkened and foolish... How can a sinner get right with God, the holy God, whose eyes are too pure to look upon sin? How can a rebel find acceptance with the holy God? By exactly the same principle. By faith. Faith alone. By trusting God, the gracious and merciful God. And that's the heart of these chapters. You see, verse 16, Paul's not ashamed of the gospel, the news of Jesus, who he is and what he's done. He's not ashamed of that message because it's the power of God to bring salvation to everyone who trusts him. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, the righteous character and a righteous gift. But that gift, verse 17, comes by trusting Him. It comes from faith to faith. Just as it's written, the righteous will always live by faith. It's the very heart of how we respond to God generally. It's the very particular of how we respond to God in relationship with Him. Now, Paul headlines it in those two verses. He talks about faith again and again and again because it's unique. The gospel message of Jesus and who He is and what He's done is a unique message that calls for faith. It's unique of all religions. But it's also unique because for centuries, Paul's own people had been working at being right with God via another means, via a totally different pathway, by the way of works. And so Paul, from verse 18 down to halfway through chapter 3, bangs deeply into a diagnosis of human hearts to say that if you think you can get to God by your own merits, your own righteousness, your own efforts, think again. Look at how deeply profound sin has impacted us. How no one is righteous, not even one. How there's all have turned away, how we've all become open graves. See how sin, Jew and Gentile, have no hope 
via works of the law. So that his great summary is in chapter 3, verse 19 and 20. Have a look there. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, not that they might be saved by it, but that every mouth may be silenced. No one will be declared right in God's sight by works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. The law is not a stepladder that you, if I can keep the Ten Commandments, I'll climb my way to God. It's a plumb bob that's used to actually show how far out of kilter my life is. It's not a way to climb to God, it's a way to see how much I can't get to God. But now, verse 21, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known. The law and the prophets testified to it. But verse 22, this righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who faith. It's faith. It's always been faith. Now, how is it possible that merely trusting Jesus means that I'll be right with the Holy God? Well, because verse 25, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith, he says it again. What Paul is saying is that there's now another way. There was the way of climbing to God through my own efforts. But there, there's another way where God has presented Jesus as a sacrifice of atonement, as the means by which my unrighteousness can be judged and his righteousness counted as mine because of his death on a cross. If I would but receive it by faith, by trusting him and not myself. You see, the essential human response needed is the one that's always been required with God. Actually, no, that's not quite a right way of saying it required by God. It makes it sound like it's an arbitrary thing that God just wants us to trust Him. No, 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 no. Faith has always been the thing that humans ought to do with God because it's the only way to respond to the Creator who gives us all things. Trust Him. It's the only way to respond to the God who is gracious and we're sinners. Trust Him. It's all we've got. Paul is radical on this necessarily radical. He takes it from Jesus himself, this radicalness. It's faith that saves through the merits of Jesus. There is no other way. It's faith alone that saves. Now, this is a massive challenge and it's a massive comfort. Let me give you the challenge and then the comfort. The challenge is to human pride. It is to say to the human who thinks I'm good enough that you're not. You've got no hope that way. And I want to... It's a challenge to every religion on the planet that says if you just do these six things, you'll be okay. No, you won't. It's a challenge particularly. Let me, with some caution, express Catholicism. Now, I know some of you have come from Catholic backgrounds and so on. At the very heart of Catholic teaching is the conviction that your works earn the favour of God. And Paul is saying, that's not right. It's faith and faith alone. It's not faith plus works. You're only... Now, how do you know if you've gone that path? Let me give you a question that helps this. 
How do you know if I'm responding to God by faith and faith alone? Well, picture this. I stand before God on the last day. And he says to me, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say? Take a moment. God says, why should I let you into heaven? What do you say? Don't call it out. But in your own head and heart, how would I answer that question? Here's the thing. If your answer starts with, because I... You've misunderstood Christianity. If your answer starts with, because I have, you've misunderstood Christianity. Because I've gone to church, because I've never killed anyone, because I've been a decent, moral, upright person. The Bible says, wrong. There is no hope that way. Read verses 1, chapter 1, verses 18 through to chapter 3. Even if you say, because I have this thing. The point of faith is that it looks to Jesus. It doesn't even notice itself. The essence of an appropriate response, the right appropriate response is to say, because you, because you have given your son and I'm trusting in him, not me. Have you done that? Are you still trusting in yourself? Or have you put your faith in God and His grace? It's a challenge, but it's a great comfort. Because it means sinner that I am, I can cry out to God and find salvation. There's hope. Now, how does this apply? Well, it applies in the context of salvation. It's critical that you understand, we understand, that it's faith is the right response to God. It's the only hope that we have to come to Him by faith in Jesus and what He's done. But I'd offer this, it applies to the new series that we're doing in a week's time. So next week we'll begin in Romans chapter 9. And it's going to be hard-hitting. Uh, it'll, be, it'll be rattling, it'll shake us. Because it will bring us an insight into the character of God who is immense, who is great, sovereign and free. Sovereign and free over you and me. He's the one who chooses who will be in. He's the one who has compassion on whom he has compassion. It's an extraordinary part of the Bible. And it will deeply disturb many of us. It will seem unfair It'll seem like God sounds like a capricious God. But here's the thing. Trust Him. Come to this part of the Bible ready to hear what it actually says and trust the God who says it. I don't know how it works. I don't know how it fits with faith. I don't know how it fits with my response. But He says it. I trust Him. So as you come to Romans 9, 10 and 11 in the future weeks... Bring that heart where you are prepared not to lean on your own understanding, but to trust, entrust yourself to God. But it applies more broadly to our life generally as well. Four ways. It applies in the context of loss, uncertainty, fear and obedience. Let me run through those quickly. 
It applies in the context of loss. You will have occasions in your life where you lose someone you deeply love. You'll wonder what God is doing and where He is. Trust Him. He's shown Himself to be good and great. Trust Him. Your health will go. You'll find there's context where um, that cancer comes. You pray to the Lord to take it away. He doesn't. You are left debilitated and winding down. What do you do in the midst of that? Trust God. Trust Him. He's holding you. He's working all things together for good. There'll be an occasion where you lose your job. You don't know what the future holds. Trust Him. Loss. Uncertainty. You're not sure now what the future will hold. I haven't got the job. I haven't got the income. I don't know. My health's failing. What's going to be in the future? Trust God. Trust Him. He's the God of the universe. He can uphold you and make all things work together for good. Trust Him. Fear. What if I speak up about the things of Christ amongst my friends and family? I'm afraid of what will happen. Trust Him. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation. Trust Him. Speak up. Declare your convictions about the things of Christ with grace and kindness and gentleness, but speak. You might be afraid of what will happen to the kids as the kids grow up in the context they're in and so on. What's going to happen to them and what's the future for them? Trust God. He loves you and your kids if you're in Christ. Trust Him. Obedience. I know He says not to be maritally unfaithful, but I love her and she's, she laughs at my jokes and she understands me. No, no, no. God says remain faithful to the wife of your youth. Trust Him. I've met a man, I've met a woman and I'm afraid of loneliness. I don't know where it's going to take me. And, and he wants me to sleep with him. She wants me to sleep with him. And if, uh, no, no, the Lord says, don't be sexually immoral. Trust him. It's a better path. It'll be good for you from a good God. I know he says to be generous with my money. But I give and I give, it'll mean I can't do the things I want it to do. Trust him. Don't lean on your own understanding. Now, I, this is a good time to say this, actually, because we're not in deep financial straits. So it's not about us. It's about you and your life with God. One of our dangers is that we do give, but we don't give in a way that actually costs us, really. And so there's no exercise of faith and trust in God at all. Learn to actually step out and trust God and give sacrificially of your money, of your time, of your resources, of your energies. Prayerfully trust Him. In the midst of loss, uncertainty, fear, be obedient to Him, trust Him prayerfully. And so come to Him in the Gospel, knowing that it's my trust in Jesus that saves me. Because that's the heart of the Christian response everywhere. Lean on Him, trust Him. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, we do ask, please, that you might help us grow in our confidence in you, our trust in you, that we might live day by day trusting you and that you might help us particularly see our only hope is in the work of Jesus on our behalf, that we might trust him, that we might trust you, the gracious God who has given us Jesus, that we might throw ourselves on you and not lean on our own efforts. We pray that by this you might transform and chain us and bring great honour to yourself. In Jesus' name, Amen.